Good evening, everyone. How you guys doing tonight? Yeah? I'm just gonna assume everyone online was like, yeah. All right, guys, I'm really thankful to be up here tonight. Um, yeah, my name's Danny. I am the campus pastor here at Mosaic at WDW. And uh, this message has been for me um, what amounts to essentially um, a nice warm hug and a punch right in the face at the same time. So I hope you guys uh, get one of those two reactions out of it. We'll find out where we go with it, all right? But tonight, the reason um, this message has been so impactful because it's something that I have needed at least 15 times in the last week to be reminded of, of our identity, of the truest identity about us. And I have become utterly convinced that identity is vital for us to understand. As believers, as humans, I would argue that identity is so vital that it is at the root of many of the issues that we're seeing right now in our cultural moment. And what I see in scripture is this, there's this connection between identity and the words, the thoughts, and the actions that we live out every single day. Identity is so vital that it, it, it encourages both unity and division. We see that, right? We see tribalism, the us versus them mentality, that we look for others who kind of agree with us in different things or look like us or dress like us or think like us, and we become a tribe. And there's something kind of primal about that, right? That kind of makes sense that like that's good for survival and stuff. Um, it makes sense like when you go, and, like if you were to go to the Serengeti and like look at lions doing their thing, like tribes make sense. But the problem is that while it can bring unity, it can also bring division. When my identity is the us, then somebody else's identity is the them. So we see it play out in that way. And we see that our world is so divided. It's been divided for thousands of years and it'll continue that trajectory. We see it right now though in so many different spaces, right? We see it politically, we see it socially, we see it religiously, we see it within families. Division. And identity is a core of this. Now, there is a close relationship between our actions, our thoughts, and our words, and how we identify ourselves. Um, for example, if you work for Walt Disney World, you are a cast member, right? And when you become a cast member, something kind of changes in you as that becomes a little part of your identity, um, where your, the nomenclature you're using starts changing, right? You never go to the, a theme park the same way again, right? Like, it changes a little part about you. Um, I remember when uh, I moved to China uh, four years ago or however long ago that was now, um, I, when Shanghai Disney opened up, my wife was working there. So I moved there as well. And I, and I had to separate from the company to go to Shanghai Disneyland to be with my wife. And I wasn't working for Disney there. And honestly, I didn't miss working at Walt Disney World like at all, but I missed being a cast member. Does that make sense? It was so weird. I get to Shanghai and I'm around all these cast members and they're talking to me like I don't understand a thing about what it means to be a cast member. And I feel like an outsider. I'm like, oh, like I, like I had the blue ID once too, I promise. Like it just won't work anymore. It's fine. If we identify ourselves with a political party or a cultural movement, we begin to change, Right? If we identify ourselves, even within Christianity, as part of a specific movement, um, good things, 
Like if you say I'm reformed or maybe you say that you are charismatic or spirit-led or purpose-driven or uh, gospel-centered, there's a bunch of different ways to slice it, but you kind of have this identity and that affects kind of the words that you might use, the authors that you might read, the people that you follow on Instagram. Everything kind of changes as you have an identity. But tonight, what I wanna hone in on is simply this. As we renew our minds on our truest identity in Christ, everything changes. As we renew our minds on our truest identity in Jesus, the way that we live our lives changes. So we've been working through the book of Ephesians over the last year, and uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. If you are using a digital device, um, I'm preaching out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, just that that makes it easier for you to follow along. And we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians, and this book is so good because it was written from this guy named Paul, who was an early church, church planter, would go place to place planting new churches all over the ancient world. And he was writing this letter to a church in a place called Ephesus. Now, just a quick recap in case you haven't been with us on this journey. This was a church that was filled with both ethnic Jews and non-Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles. Both have now identified themselves with Jesus, but still there's these cultural tensions that exist between them. So Paul has been continually over and over and over again through the first three chapters of this letter, going over their new identity in Jesus and what that means. That the family that they have been adopted into spiritually calls who they are more than the family of origin they were born into physically, more than the cultural, the cultural moment that they existed in, more than the caste system that they were a part of. Instead, son and daughter of the king mattered more than everything else. And last week, uh, Dave was up here and he was preaching about how Paul was encouraging them to use their words, that they were called to speak truth in love. And the reason for that was not just because God just wants us to be nice to people. It's because when we speak, if you are a follower of Jesus, we do not represent ourselves alone. We are a representative of the family of God. We are representative of what he calls the head of the family, Jesus himself. So when we go, we aren't just about us anymore. It changes everything. I don't just represent my family. I don't just represent myself. I represent the king of the cosmos. And when I speak the truth in love, I put his glory on display. So tonight, we're going to turn to the next paragraph, starting in verse 17. And what we're going to be looking at is the realities that the way in which we live our lives should be transformed by this same identity. See, each person has a way of doing life, right? Um, Another good word for this is worldview. We have a worldview that we see the world through. It's the lens by which we see the world. It's the guiding principles that we have that guides our decisions, our thoughts, our actions. But here's the trouble. Our decisions go by a default that is different than the way of Jesus. That's true of me by nature. And according to scripture, it's true of you as well. So there's this way of the world, the way that the world does life. And then there's the way that Jesus does it and they don't crisscross. 
So let's go ahead and we're going to dive into verse 17. So let's start there. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That is a big deal. But then, oh, let's go one more verse, actually. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what Paul is describing here is the way that the Gentiles default into walking. So he outlines a few of these spaces to describe the way that the Gentiles walk. What is the way that the Gentiles do life? He says, it's in the futility of their mind. So let's break that down. There's that word futile. You guys know what that means, right? The idea that something is kind of like um, just an unnecessary task. It has no importance. The way that I kind of simplified it is it's silly methods that go after a goal that doesn't really matter. Silly methods. It's the stuff that we do that doesn't really make sense but we're going after it full force as if it mattered. Now, in the Greco-Roman world that this is being written into, this was the desire for honor, prestige, power, wealth, authority, control. That's what they struggled with. We don't struggle with anything like that today. Then he goes on and he says, they are darkened in their understanding. So they're darkened in their understanding. This, their cognitive ability to reason it's like the dimmer switch has gone down on it. And all of a sudden they're looking and they think that they can see clearly, but actually it's on like 1%. They've been alienated from the life of God. They are strangers to God's good design for humanity's flourishing. They are ignorant, having hardness of heart, that their hearts have become hardened, that they cannot will themselves towards enlightenment. No matter how much they strive after getting that dimmer switch and moving it up, they keep missing it time and time and time again by the way they live their lives. They are callous in giving themselves up to impurity, but instead they are actively choosing an option of indulgence that goes to this attitude of, well, it's my life. I'm just going to do whatever makes me feel good. Now, that is the way that the Gentiles lived according to Paul. And every, every one of us can probably think of somebody or some people group that kind of fits that description in your mind. But I would I'd challenge us all to is what Paul has in mind. Because you see, this was, he was talking about the Gentiles, but he's not only talking to the Gentiles. Because you see, he was speaking into the Jewish background on how they understood the non-Jews, these Gentiles, that they were all of these things. They really were, that they didn't know the one true God. Their understanding was ultimately futile and useless, that they were separated from God, that one day God would come back in judgment through the coming Messiah to deal with the rebellion that, they, that these Gentiles have had. That's the way the Jews viewed the Gentiles. This was their us versus them mentality. And if we're not careful, we do the exact same thing all the time. Yeah, wait until they get what's coming to them. Uh, but notice how Paul starts his paragraph. He doesn't start by saying, you Gentiles, you guys 
always do this, stop doing this. Instead, what does he say? He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Remember, the audience of this letter is not you and me, and it's not just the Gentiles. It is a Jewish and Gentile audience. In essence, what he's getting at is all of you. All of you have been doing this. Whether you think you've been doing this or not, whether you've been pointing the finger at the other person saying, yeah, they need to hear this message or not, you're all in this together. See, the generalization that he was using was speaking directly into their mentality. So for the Gentiles, their generalization was this generalization of a worldview of license. So when you hear that somebody has license, it's this idea of I can just do whatever I want and you have no right to speak into it, okay? So think about Danny when I was 16 years old going to the DMV and getting my driver's license, right? My dad took me in my grandma's Toyota Camry because it was apparently safer or whatever. But so we get in my grandma's old Toyota Camry and I go, I get my license, I'm smiling in it, it's all good. And what do I wanna do? I want to drive like everywhere. Like my mom needs groceries. Yeah, I'll go do a grocery run like in a minute, right? Like now I never want to go get groceries. But like I want to go to the taqueria to get a burrito or drive myself to practice or drive my brother somewhere. Like I didn't even care where I was driving. Just let me drive because I had a license. And that can so easily be the way we live. But that was the way that the Gentiles viewed the world. That was the way of the Gentiles. So then you contrast that with the way that the Jews did life. Jews, on the other hand, were brought up to believe that since they were considered God's covenant kids and were instructed to live under this thing called the law or the Old Testament Torah, they had achieved righteousness. They got it. They were good. But actually, this was self-righteousness. Now, let's be real, right? Nobody wants to view themselves as self-righteous, right? I would imagine the Jews didn't want to think of themselves as self-righteous either. They're like, no, we're just righteous. It's all good. But the reality was, is that they could easily fall into that trap just as easily as the Gentiles fell into the trap of license. Because you see, self-righteousness at its bare bones is whenever we believe that our actions, our thoughts, and our words make us better than someone else. Do you feel that at all? It's such a subtle shift, right? We do it when we're scrolling. We see somebody post something and we're like, uh, <laughs> I would never post that, loser. And you just kind of keep scrolling or you block them or unfollow them or unfriend them, whatever. It's so subtle. Like when we quietly believe that we are better than others because we serve more, because we have better political or social views than somebody else, because we don't gossip or sleep around like said person does, because we don't post like they do, because you show up on time all the time and that person never shows up on time. And honestly, I'm actually, I never show up on time to almost anything. So if you judge me for that, I don't blame you. Um, and I, because I keep my car cleaner than you, I judge you. I mean, you could think of a thousand and one ways to judge people and be self-righteous over them. It doesn't have to be a Christian reason. It just has to be any reason. Self-righteousness does not require um, knowing anything about the Bible. Every one of us can fall into that trap. But Paul's point that he's making here is clear, that whether you are tempted to fall into the pit of license or self-righteousness, you are walking down the same dimly lit path. That is the way of the world. And that's not great news. The good news, though, is that 
that Messiah that the Jews wanted to come, he showed up. And he didn't come to demonstrate judgment. He came to demonstrate his unconditional, unrelenting, sacrificial, never giving up love. He put skin on, made his dwelling among us, lived with us, died for us, taking our brokenness, our sin, our shame on himself so that we could come alive and be born again into this new family, that we could be adopted as sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos, that we could recognize that we aren't worthless, that it's not about what you can do for God, that it's not about how good or bad you are. It is about how good Jesus is. And that changes everything. And that's what they needed to remember. But that truth, that truth of the gospel, it's something that for any of you who are here or listening online that that follows after Jesus, you know this. And it's so fleeting, so quick to forget the goodness of the gospel. So here's a question. Who do you view as the enemies of the way of Jesus? Who do you view as the enemy? Is it the conservatives or the liberals? Communists, fascists, maskers, anti-maskers, those in support of BLM, those who are in opposition. Is it uh, murderers, child traffickers, addicts of pornography, alcohol, drug abuse? Is it millennials? I don't know. Like who are the enemies in your mind? I'm a millennial, guys. I can say things like that. (laughs) The reality is that regardless of the upbringing you had or the worldview that you see the world through, None of us were born into the way of Jesus. Some of us might have been born into families who followed after Jesus or faith communities where people were following after the way of Jesus. But what I can guarantee you, according to scripture, is none of us were born onto the path leading to Jesus. Not one of us. Until the spirit of God turned up the dimmer switch of our enlightenment, picked us up and seated us with Christ then everything changes, but not overnight. It moved us, the Spirit moves us from the way of the world to the way of Jesus. So if that's what our default's supposed to be, what does that look like? Continuing on in uh, verse 20. But this is not the way that you learned Christ. So he just said, this is the way of the world, but that's not you. That's not what you learned in Christ. But he doesn't say in Christ. He doesn't say about Christ. He doesn't say for Christ. He says the way you learned Christ. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is because that phrase, that type of phrase is not used anywhere else in all of ancient texts. Not just in scripture, but in all of ancient literature. That type of phrase where you say something like, you were, that you learned a person. That kind of sounds a little bit weird, right? If, if you said, yeah, I learned Danny last week. Like what, what would that even mean? I don't know. Uh, really, that sounds weird. But the idea behind this is he is using a cognitive, a cognitive reality of learning, mixing with the relational knowledge of Jesus. See, this is about more than learning about Jesus. It's about more than stalking him. It's about more than discovering things from him. It is about knowing him. It's relational. 
See, the call of Jesus is not just about trying to change our actions, but being changed by knowing him and renewing our minds on who he says we are. Uh, I read this from a pastor, Tony Morita. I'm just gonna quote him because it was so good. Christianity is not about moral rule keeping, religious attendance, having warm feelings at some religious event. It's not merely about believing in a God or doing good things or even knowing facts about Christ. None of those things make up what it means to follow after the way of Jesus. It is about knowing Christ himself. And he's knowable. He's knowable. The God of the universe, the one that came 2,000 years ago, he is knowable even today when he has long since ascended. He's knowable. Now, here's the deal. Paul is operating under a very strong assumption here, which is what he gets at in the next verse, verse 21. Assuming, see, assuming, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So his assumption is that the hearers who are hearing these words being read out to them in the local church in Ephesus, they have already begun following after the way of Jesus. That they've embarked on the journey of this thing called discipleship. Now, discipleship is when we submit ourselves under the mentorship and the leadership of another so that we'd be drawn onto the way of Jesus. But not so that we could just study under a person, but so that we would know Jesus. But we know Jesus as we watch somebody else know Jesus. That's something that I need. It's something that I get from my friend Dave who disciples me. But you see, discipleship, it's not a program, even though there are a lot of good discipleship curriculums out there. It's not a list of things to know, even though I love a good systematic theology textbook. It's not about more moral living, even though when you follow the way of Jesus, it does transform the way that you live life. It's about turning from your prideful way and my prideful way onto the, the way and the path of Jesus. See, in the way of Jesus, everything about us changes, but not because we committed to a system of living or to some religious ordinance. It's because we have discovered a person worth following and he's alive. And that changes everything. Now, verse 22, Paul continues. He says it this way. So to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So Paul is here referring to this old self. And he continues on verses 23 and 24. And to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self. So you have old self and new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he refers to old self and new self. Uh, I like using the, the phrases, the false self and the true self. Because you see, in the beginning, God didn't create us so that we would be screw-ups. He didn't create us so that we would just feel worthless. He didn't create us in brokenness. He created us to be his image bearers to the world, to be his poema, his masterpiece, declaring the glory of his love to the cosmos. But sin and brokenness entered into the story and left us a masterpiece scarred. See, that's what Jesus does. He takes that 
false self, this false self that has tried to strip off the beauty of the masterpiece that God declared through us. And he restores us to our true self. So what we do on our worst days, our medium days, and even on most of our good days, as we live towards our false self, we're not living in the truest version of us. We're living in this old self, this false self. So Paul's getting at, for the false self, that this is something that they need to be putting off as if it's a garment that they need to cast off and instead put on the new self. So what is this old or false self? So to get a little bit more in the weeds with it, it's the generational patterns of our family of origin. It's the broken desires that come naturally to you and to me. It's the fractured relationship styles, communication styles, or lack thereof. It's the dark side of our Enneagram number. It's the lingering wounds of past trauma. It's the self-righteousness of our worldview that puts us above others in politics or social issues. It's our tribalism of us versus them. It's anything, in short, that would place us apart from any truth other than the truth of the gospel. It's the image of God inside you that has been corrupted by a world that is so far from God's divine ideal of love. Now, I would imagine that all of us who follow after the way of Jesus desire to live instead to the true self, right? And if I had my pick every morning, I'd probably pick true self. I'd probably pick new self every day. But so much pulls back at us, right? Both internally and externally, the influences of our culture. Um, now, I don't want to get legalistic about anything, but I wanted to show you an example that is definitely uh, my favorite distraction and something that constantly pulls me away from intimacy with Jesus. And it's this, right? And here's a few statistics if you don't um, quite know where I'm going at with this. Um, the smartphone. The average iPhone user touches his or her iPhone 2,617 times a day. Crazy, right? 2618. Um, average user uh, is on his or her phone for two and a half hours or 76 sessions throughout the day. Guys, I, I hate when people bash millennials. This isn't a bash, it's just a stat. For millennials, we double that number. Being in the same room as your phone has been proven, even if it's turned off, to reduce your working memory and problem-solving skills. In 2000, the average attention span, according to one study in America, was 12 seconds. Like, that doesn't seem very long, right? 12 seconds. That was 2000. We're, those are the days of the Nokia, right? Since the introduction of smartphones and social media, it has now dropped to eight seconds. Perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. We're getting beat by a guppy. This is not good. And there's, what's so much fun is there's actually a name for this now. It, um, for this digital, digital distraction, it's called continuous partial attention. And that is me most mornings when I'm like, I could spend some time in prayer before the kids wake up. And instead, but my phone's right there too. It's late at night. It's in the middle of the day, always there calling my, my attention back to itself. 
And guys, I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-smartphone at all. And you know what? The truth is, is I don't think Jesus is either. But what I do think is that our devices are not bringing the type of rest and peace that our souls actively long for. They just distract us from what is good and pleasing. See, I don't think Jesus is against smartphones, but I, what I do think he is against, against anything that ensnares our souls, anything that is rooted in deceitful desires, anything that stops us from allowing us in our minds to be renewed. So what ensnares your soul? Maybe it's not a phone. What is it? But as we renew our minds on our truest identity in Christ, everything about us is transformed. So in verse 23, he talks about that. He says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, renewing our minds is the process of living into our new identity within the family of God. It's living into our sonship. That for if you follow after Jesus, you have been adopted into the forever family of God that nothing can displace you. You have been adopted. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see your brokenness. He doesn't see a rebel. He sees his kid and he loves us. But that's the truth that we need to renew our minds on and cast away the distractions from. See, in this letter, Paul is constantly using this image of adoption because he wants us to get it. He wants us to get that before we work on changing ourselves and changing our actions, we need to rest in a new identity. But here's the deal. I like the way Pastor Pete Scazzaro says it. He says, I have the Holy Spirit in my heart, but I have my family and my bones. And here's what he meant by that. What he meant by that is yes, the Holy Spirit is doing a new work in me, but I wish that was the end of the story, but it's not because my family of origin, the things that I learned, good and bad, the old self is still present. It's not like all of a sudden we give our life to Jesus and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's great to feel exactly like Jesus feels all the time. I never fail at anything ever again. This is perfect. That's not life, right? Because we have our family in our bones. So, there's a really good book out there um, that was super help, that's been super helpful for me and our ministry leaders. It's a book called Rare Leadership. And the two authors are, one's a pastor, one's a clinical psychologist. And what they're, just, and what they're studying as part of the book is they're looking into how the synapses of our brain are wired into our identity. In essence, what they're studying is the brain and spirituality and how they interact with one another. And as they studied, uh, and as they studied, what they discovered is when Paul writes something like, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. You guys feel that at all? Like that is rooted in what's happening synaptically in our brains. That we're hardwired into an identity of brokenness. But what they discovered is as somebody works not to just correct their behavior, not on behavior modification, but on remembering and renewing their mind on their truest identity as sons and daughters, it literally changes the synaptic wirings of the brain. In essence, uh, neurology can now confirm that what Paul said 2,000 years ago to the church in Ephesus is actually right. That we can renew our minds, that our brains can be renewed to believe the truth of Jesus and by doing so, transforms us into the way of Jesus. And as we renew our minds to this new identity, our truest identity in Jesus, the way we live is transformed. Now, 
He finishes off in verse 24. Let's reread it one more time. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, this is what it means to put on the new or true self, to take off the garment of the old self, to put on the garment of the new self. See, the goal of Jesus is not to replace us with somebody different. He's not looking to make you like a Stepford adopted kid of God, right? To make us look perfect. What he is looking for is to transform us into the truest version of you all along. That's it. He wants you to discover who you really are meant to be. He wants to set us free from both the bondage of license and self-righteousness. And instead, what he wants to do is reform us from being self-righteous, that belief that we, what we do, say, or believe makes us better than others, to true righteousness, the reality that what Jesus has already done allows us to be counted as good with God. He wants to reform us from license, the belief that no one gets to tell me what to do, my truth, my way, to holiness, God's way. The reality that I have been chosen, set apart to follow the way of Jesus that is different and better than what my natural desires might tell me. But this doesn't happen overnight. It's not without struggle. What it does look like is consuming less of what the world has to offer and more of what God has to offer. What it looks like is putting on the true self. And when we do, what I'm willing to wager is that you're gonna find out that he is actually enough. Now, there's no exhaustive, exhaustive list of what this should or shouldn't entail, but we did want to prepare some practical resources to kind of give you next steps on some resources on renewing your mind. Um, a few of the resources are ones that I have personally used or currently use, um, and you're going to be able to find all of them on our website. Um, I think we'll have it on social media, on the app, and other places as well um, if you want to check it out. But it's thisismosaic.org slash resources. A few of the resources that I would personally recommend, um, there's a great book called The TechWise Family uh, by Andy Crouch. It helps guide you on how to utilize technology within your home, whether you have a wife uh, or a spouse, kids, um, or you have roommates, whatever that situation looks like. How do you use technology well in your home um, so that you are using it and it is not using you? Super good book, um, very creative. Another great book, um, you definitely want to check out. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's by John Mark Comer. Um, talk about a, a hug and a punch. It's both. Um, it's going to guide you towards slowing down in your everyday reality to just be in intimacy with Jesus and discover your new identity in him. So good. Also, a couple um, ways to utilize technology because technology can also be utilized um, to draw us near to Jesus. Uh, great app is called Dwell. I've been using it um, off and on for the last year. I just started using it again this last week. So good. It's um, kind of an audio Bible app uh, and you can pick a different voice with different background music. And what you can do with it though is you can loop specific verses over and over again with pauses for prayer. So it's a great app for meditating on prayer. Super good for that. Um, and another great podcast is The Bible Project podcast. We love using their videos, um, but their podcasts are basically like a deep dive in research for each of these videos that are just brilliant um, and just help you really um, get immersed in the context of scripture. And it's been so helpful in my life. Now, all great resources, but at the end of the day, resources are just that resources. They aren't a savior. They can't do anything to save you. They're not Jesus. They can only at best point you to him. 
So what I want to encourage you toward is to find resources that are going to help renew your mind on your truest identity in Jesus. Because you see, as we renew our minds on him, our truest identity, everything about us has changed. It doesn't happen overnight. It does happen day by day. And as we do that, I have to believe that we discover that it's worth it. I'm aware, though, that for those who are listening online and for those who are here in person, not everyone is a follower of Jesus. Not everyone has been adopted yet into the family of God. Not everyone here has surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus. So with that in mind, what I want to encourage you, if that's you, I'd encourage you to have a conversation with maybe a friend who you know who follows the way of Jesus or talk to one of our elders or deacons who will be up here in the front at the end of the gathering. Or for those of you online, um, we have uh, some deacons on that uh, comment chat. Feel free to go in there. Um, Just reach out to somebody who can trust to point you down what is the way of Jesus. And if that is you tonight, here's, here's something I want you to know. If you're feeling the exhaustion of crafting an identity based on your goodness or your freedom, if you're feeling that exhaustion, what I can tell you is following up to the way of Jesus will set you free. I can also tell you it won't do it automatically all the time, and it's going to be a struggle like it is for me. But what I can tell you is that's made a huge difference in my soul. So wherever you are at tonight, whether you feel near to Jesus or far away, what I want you to think is what if this truly defined you? What if this defined Christianity? What if Christians weren't known for self-righteousness, judgment, hypocrisy, but we were known for simply as the people who are with Jesus? People who are continually renewing our minds on the voice of love. Let's pray. God, God, I thank you that you haven't given up on us, that you are for us, that you are with us, that you want to do something radical in us. Lord, I thank you that you are good, that you are great, that you are above everything. Lord, I confess that it is hard for me right now to trust and to believe. It's hard for me to feel near to you. It's hard for me to trust my identity in you. And Lord, for anyone who's with me in that, Lord, I pray that you would hear our prayers and our, our, our cry out for praise and mercy, Lord. God, would you fill us with your spirit in a way that would hit deep? Lord, would you help us and give us the words? Would you give us the strength to actively renew our minds on the gospel, to renew our minds on knowing Jesus, to renew our minds on our truest identity? Father, I know you're not far away, even when it feels that. So Lord, would you draw us near tonight? 
Would you empower us and embolden us to discover resources and get into discipleship relationships, into D groups and all these different spaces so that we would draw near to you. Not so that we would be counted as better Christians, but so that your presence would become more alive in our lives. Father, we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.